You have no idea how good it is to be at this convention. Jean and I, where is she? I always have to check in case she left me. <laughs> Running for the exit somewhere. We've got a lot to be thankful for. Just come through two of the toughest years of our lives together. And it was the prayers of this crowd that held us together. Thank you. Special thank you to my family at It Is Written. I know how you prayed us through that. And to the folks at Eden Valley, who actually helped me bounce back. <laughs> it's really good to be here. Really good. Now, this morning, I was going to preach a sermon called, Whatever Happened to the Lost? But as you came into the auditorium this morning, it, it had become an article in the Adventist Review, and so everybody already has the sermon. <laughs> and so we could probably take our time, and I could get everybody to pull out their copy of the review, and we could quietly read the article, and when we're done, I'll come back up and have the closing prayer. I could go sit with Gene. But I suppose that would make for bad television unless I were to hold up one copy in front of the camera and very slowly pan it for the TV audience, too. It'd be like 3ABN reading theater, wouldn't it? it would... I'd like to take a look at the Word of God. We're going to read a passage. I'm going to pray. And then the time we have together, I want to explore it a little bit. It's in the book of Jude, right before the end of your Bible, just before the book of Revelation. It's the last few verses, verse 22 of the book of Jude. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Father, as we've opened the Bible, we know in our hearts that we are not about to listen to human opinion. It's the voice of our Almighty God, our Creator, our loving Savior. And hearts are changed by the Word of God, and it's our prayer that our hearts would be changed by the Word of God this morning. Forgive my sin. I feel like a toddler handling the fine china when I come out and preach. I have no right except that you call us to tell the story of what Jesus has done. And so it's my prayer that what I say would not be human opinion, but that you would bless me from, with thoughts from the throne room, and that above all else we would see Jesus more clearly that we would become a little more like Him. And when He speaks to our hearts today from the Word, it is our covenant with you that we will follow Jesus. So take this time, bless it with your presence, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I read this story the other day about a very, very successful man who worked very hard for a very long time. And he came to the end of his long and very successful career, and the time had come for him to sit back and enjoy the fruits of his labor just a little bit. Time to rest, and it 
was something he had earned because he really was very successful. In fact, this guy was so successful that when he got up in the morning and looked out of his bedroom window, he literally owned everything he could see. He could not see past the boundaries of his property. And that's not because he was on some large ranch somewhere in the state of Texas, as impressive as some of those ranches are. It's because this guy had something bigger than those. Oh yeah, the big ranches were small potatoes compared to this man. As a matter of fact, he could get on a horse and he could ride in any direction for a week or two and never leave his property, ever, because this man is Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his career in Daniel chapter 4, the man who quite literally conquered the whole known world and gave us the Neo-Babylonian Empire. His dad actually got the empire started. He managed to conquer the Assyrians and put an end to their domination of the Babylonian people. And then his son, Nebuchadnezzar, took it a little bit further. And before he knew it, he was down to the south and to the west, and he was knocking on Egypt's door. And by the year 597, he'd been to Jerusalem a couple of times and utterly conquered it. He was, in Daniel 4, at the end of his career, the king of the world. And everybody still remembers him to this day in almost every culture. And in Daniel chapter 4, after huge success on the battlefield and after a very impressive reconstruction program in the city of Babylon, fixing all the damage that had been caused by the Assyrian hordes, he was rightfully proud of everything that he'd accomplished. And did Nebuchadnezzar accomplish stuff? The old temples to the Babylonian gods that were in disrepair, he rebuilt those. He created a revival of Babylonian religion. He was a spiritual man at the heart of things. The royal palace, the one his dad had started building, he finished that. And according to history, he spared absolutely nothing. He decked it out in a way that nobody else could afford. It was covered with cedar and bronze and gold and silver and precious stones. The average population couldn't afford it, and the whole world talked about this palace. The city wall, you've heard about that in the prophecy seminars. A triple wall to keep the enemies out of Babylon. Nobody could conquer her. She literally sat as a queen, a triple wall, too high for the enemies to go over, too thick for the enemies to dig their way through. Nebuchadnezzar also built an underground passage that connected the two halves of that city. Do you remember maps of Babylon? And there might be one on the back of some Bibles. If you remember it, the city was roughly bisected by the Euphrates River. And so he built a tunnel to connect the two halves of the city, a real engineering feat given the time period that we're talking about. Then he also built a bridge over the river with specially constructed pilings that would not wear down in the current of the river. They were streamlined. It was careful engineering. And it was also engineered so that when the river came out the other end of that bridge, it slowed down the current enough that it would no longer erode the foundations of the city. Babylon was an engineering marvel. Then there was the hanging gardens. We've all heard of those. That happened because one day his wife came to see him. Nebi, she said, and only his wife could call the king of Babylon Nebi. Nebi? Yes, honey. I've been living here in Babylon for quite a while. How do you like it? Well, it's okay. But I've kind of noticed something. We're living out here on the plains, and out here on the plains last week, I watched our dog run away for five days. I can still see him out there on the horizon. It's kind of boring here in Babylon, and I'm from Persia, and we had mountains. Now, I can identify with Nebuchadnezzar's wife. I grew up where we had mountains. I'm living in Maryland now. They have something there they call a mountain. Let me assure you, Marylanders, that is not a mountain. That's not a mountain. 
she was lonely for her mountains. And so he built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He gave her an artificial mountain right in the city. When Nebuchadnezzar was finished building that town, it was absolutely stunning. And it is no accident that the world still remembers that city to this day. When people say that ancient Babylon was one of the wonders of the world, that's almost an understatement. It was so mind-boggling, so beautiful, so impressively engineered that we really don't have much that rivals it to this day. Not when you compare apples with apples, not at all. And now at the end of his career in Daniel chapter 4, it is time for the king to rest. And he did what any of us would probably do. Took a look at what he'd done with his life and patted himself on the back. Job well done. And honestly, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with knowing you did well? Is it wrong to be proud of your accomplishments? Is it wrong to know that your life was a success? Well, in many ways, probably not. I mean, I've done it. I've stood back from a project and said, that went really well. Good job. What's wrong with that? I mean, it seems like an okay thing to do. Except in this case, the Bible says, the moment that king uttered a word of self-congratulation, he utterly loses his mind. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 29. Now, I'm going to jump in at the end of the story, which makes this bad chronology, and you're going to have to go back and read the beginning of the story later to put all the pieces together, but that's good. It means you'll be doing Bible homework this afternoon. What I'm about to do is bad chronology, but hopefully it makes a memorable point. And I only have one point to make this morning. Other preachers, they can have three points in a prayer. I only ever have one point. I'm not smart enough to remember three. Daniel 4.29. At the end of the 12 months, I mean, after Daniel had already warned him something was going to happen, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? He's justifiably proud. He's sinking back over his life. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, remember what your fourth grade teacher said about you? Do you remember that? Oh, that Nebuchadnezzar, that kid is as dumb as a bag of potatoes. He wouldn't be in this, he wouldn't be in this school if his dad wasn't the king. He's never going to amount to much. You sure showed that teacher, didn't you? Hmm? Remember your 11th grade homeroom teacher, Nebuchadnezzar? Remember what he said? Pulled you aside one day and said, I've got a little phrase that I think you're going to find useful in life, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, what is it, teacher? It's, would you like fries with that? You're going to be using that a lot in your life. Remember those people, Nebuchadnezzar? Look at what you've done. Look, you showed them all. You did a phenomenal job. Look what you've accomplished. What's wrong with that? I mean, doesn't he deserve some kind of reward? I mean, don't we still give out a gold watch when somebody retires or something equivalent? He accomplished a lot, but he did not accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish. And there's the big problem, and there's my one point. What do you mean God wanted him to accomplish something? He's the bad guy in this story. God's not, follow me carefully. No sooner do the congratulatory words fall out of his mouth, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, that is it. I've had it, Nebuchadnezzar. You just lost it all. No, there's only a handful of examples in your Bible where God actually speaks for himself with his audible voice. Only a handful of examples. 
On some occasions, God doesn't speak through a prophet and he doesn't pass along the written word. He just takes care of it himself. And when God speaks, it means that everybody reading the story needs to sit up and pay attention because he's going to say something of universal application. It only happens a few times. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God Himself announces the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry at His baptism and marks Himself the moment when a passage from Daniel chapter 9 is coming to pass. He personally lets the whole world know the seed of the woman has come to crush the head of the serpent. God speaks from the sky. He did it with the Ten Commandments. God is reviewing the moral law of God. Out of heaven, He lets you hear His voice. When God Himself speaks from heaven, pay attention to what He's going to say because it is not a small thing, and there is an important lesson for you and I to learn. Verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. What? I'm going to lose this kingdom? Is this that moment you told me about? Is this when the head of gold is going to give way to the chest and arms of silver? I can't believe it's actually come. Is this the moment I'm going to lose my kingdom? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you are going to lose so much more than your kingdom. Verse 32, they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like an oxen. Don't you understand, Nebuchadnezzar? Nobody loves you. Not like I do. You don't have these people's hearts. You don't really have their loyalty. You're not as influential as you think you are. They don't care about you. Once you've outlived your usefulness to these people, they're going to put you in a field. You're not going to go to some hospital. A nurse is not going to spoon feed you applesauce three times a day. You're not going to get sponge baths twice a week. You're not going to have a private room with a TV and a PlayStation. They are going to stick you in a pasture like an animal. You don't have their hearts because you are not the influence that I intended you to be. Don't you get it, Nebuchadnezzar? I'm the reason you even have a kingdom. I'm the only thing you've got. And if you don't want me, you don't have anything. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I wish it didn't play out this way. It didn't have to. I have knocked on your door hundreds of times. I spoke to you through that statue in the dream, and you saw my son in the fiery furnace. But if you don't want me, I'm not going to force it. The only problem is now, without me, you don't have anything. I'm going to prove it. They shall make you eat grass like the oxen. Seven times will pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and He gives it to whomever He chooses. Oh, don't miss the point in that final word. He gives it to whomever He chooses. Nebuchadnezzar was chosen by God. Don't miss the point. Now he's going to lose it all. And why would God do that? I mean, it seems so severe, doesn't it? going to lose everything because he said, job well done. It seems so severe. Why does God do that? Is it just because of his pride? I mean, that's the easy answer. This is my kingdom. I built it. Nebuchadnezzar speaking with the voice of a fallen angel. An angel kicked out of heaven for saying the same kinds of things. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. 
If Lucifer had succeeded in his rebellion, which he wouldn't have, but if he had, you can kind of imagine him walking around heaven saying the same kinds of things. Isn't this not the great kingdom that I have built? So yes, Nebuchadnezzar is speaking with the voice of Lucifer. Obviously, pride is an issue, but there is something else in this story that you and I should not miss. There's actually, I believe, a message for God's last day remnant church, and there always is in the big stories of the Bible. There is always a message for every generation and every story, but in the big stories, there's usually a message for God's last day people. Almost always. Follow me carefully. Back in Daniel chapter 2, we meet Nebuchadnezzar for the first time. He's having a night terror. He's woken up in the middle of the night. He's laying in a puddle of sweat. His heart is pounding wildly, and he can't really remember why he's so terrified. Frightened in the dark. The man who conquered the world, frightened in the dark. Daniel tells him what the issue was. He had a dream, a dream that told him his kingdom would not last forever. Then, in the very next chapter, he builds an image of solid gold. You guys know this stuff. He built an image of solid gold. He's shaking his fist at the God of Daniel, not believing that his kingdom had to be temporary, and also not really understanding that he was given that kingdom and chosen by God for a reason. Follow the story carefully. God allows Babylon. He doesn't approve of everything that happens in Babylon, but he establishes Babylon. When Daniel first approaches him in Daniel chapter 2 and tries to explain the statue in the dream, he says something important. The God of heaven has given you a kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. The God of heaven has given you this kingdom. Wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he gave them into your hand and he made you ruler. You don't want to underestimate this point. Nebuchadnezzar was chosen by God. God gave him that kingdom, and he did it on purpose. He intended that kingdom to be for the benefit of the world. He had a design. He had a plan for that pagan king. Nebuchadnezzar's not just some pagan who was a problem for the children of Israel. It turns out he was supposed to be a servant of God in a peculiar way, mind you, but he was a servant of God. He's not some foreign godless invader that got lucky and somehow snuck past God's defenses in Jerusalem. God allowed him to do that. A pagan king ruthlessly conquers the world, burns down the temple, kills the children of Zedekiah, puts out the king's eyes. Somehow, that guy is also chosen by God. And I know that is not a comfortable idea. I know that because Nebuchadnezzar is the ultimate bad guy in the Bible. But it's not so easy in this world to say those people are God's people and those people are not God's people. After all, in Revelation 18, before the final crisis, where are God's people? They're in Babylon. God's calling them out. Look at this story. The chosen people of God are dragged away in chains. And a pagan idol-worshiping king is told by a Hebrew prophet that God gave him his kingdom. It's mind-boggling. But God works with whoever he needs to to save a world lost in sin. God's will will be accomplished with or without us. His message does get out with or without us. Nebuchadnezzar, in his own way, is a servant of God. At least he was supposed to be. Read Ellen White's comments, Prophets and Kings, page 501. If Babylon had been faithful, God would have prospered them longer. Nebuchadnezzar, in his own way, a servant of God. Cyrus, called God's anointed servant. He was hardly a Hebrew, hardly a worshiper of the true God at that point in his life. 
I mean, when you first meet Nebuchadnezzar, it's obvious he's not ready for translation. No way. Worshiping idols, killing people, he's arrogant, he's full of pride, he's fighting God. But God uses whoever he wants to to get the job done because our God never gives up on reaching the lost. And you see the way God patiently labors with this guy. You see the way this stubborn king softens and eventually gives his heart to Jesus, and then you find out God actually gave him the kingdom while you start to see a pattern, a plan. God's people are not just to be found among the genetic descendants of Abraham. God will use whoever he wills to accomplish his purpose, and his people are found all over the face of the globe, and they're found in every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, and what he's told you and I to do is go out there and find them and bring them home. They're everywhere. Some people say because they're out there and they're God's people and they're out there, we don't have to bring them into the remnant church, that it's not important to belong to God's church. Nonsense. It is. God calls everybody out of Babylon and He raises up a church in the last days before Jesus comes. Everybody is in the remnant church the day before Jesus comes. Everybody is. But God uses who He will. When you and I stand in the kingdom of heaven one day, we're going to be a little shocked by who's there. We will be. I mean, that's why God opens the books for a thousand years when you get there. You're going to have some questions. I know my mother-in-law will be. She'll come out of her mansion one morning, look next door, and there I am, living right next to her. And she's going to be distraught for a moment. I've come up in the wrong resurrection! <laughs> She'll want to see the books. You're going to be shocked at who's there. God uses Nebuchadnezzar because Israel blew it. She failed to be a light to the world. She couldn't care less about the lost in the end. She didn't care anymore. And so God moves to a plan B. He finds another person of influence to get the word out. God's work will never be stopped by our indifference. God's work will never be stopped by our distractions. God's work will never be stopped by our debates or our busyness. His work will not be stopped if we don't find it important. God's work goes through. God never puts the lost on the back burner, ever. Never. In Ezekiel 16, we find this heartbreaking story. It breaks my heart. God Himself tells this story during the Babylonian captivity. It's about an abandoned baby that He finds in a field. And of course, the baby is Israel. Ezekiel 16:4. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. Nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed, rubbed with salt or wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. Don't, don't forget, Israel. Nobody wanted you but me. You didn't amount to much, not when I found you. Verse 6. When I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field. Israel was the least of all the people on the planet. There was nothing that made them special. They were a baby cast aside, laying helpless in the field, destined to die. And God walks by and He pities that baby and He loves her and clothes her and raises her and spoils her and makes her a queen among the nations. She is the bride of Christ. 
But then shockingly, someone who is basking in God's favor and dependent on God's favor suddenly turns on him. Ezekiel 16.50. But you trusted in your own beauty. As if any of us have any of our own. You played the harlot because of your fame, poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. Ah, the unfaithfulness began already in the days of Solomon when the king started to figure he was smarter than God's plan. They were supposed to care about the lost Israel. They were supposed to win the world to God. He put them right in the crossroads of the ancient world so everybody could see. Everybody could see the temple and the sacrifices. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Read Solomon's dedication. He said so as he's praying over the temple. I pray all the Gentiles would come here and learn how to love you. But that same people Israel is so completely unfaithful, they start putting their children in the arms of Molech. God has to send them back home. And where does he send them? He sends them to Chaldea, the home of Abraham, their father. He's sending them back home. That had to be very embarrassing. It's not just any nation that comes and conquers Jerusalem. It's the nation they originally left. The baby is being put back in the field. The unfaithful bride is being sent back home to dad. And then God picks another influential Chaldean who frankly is nothing like Abraham to get the word out about his love and his gospel to the world. He expects Nebuchadnezzar to do something for him. That's why he tries so hard to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention so early on. Nebuchadnezzar is actually described in Daniel 4 as a tree that is supposed to be a shade to all the beasts of the field, the nations of the world. The tree became strong, Daniel 4.11. Its height reached to the heavens. It could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. God brought the world to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, they weren't getting the message in Canaan, so he establishes a new center of influence. He intends Nebuchadnezzar to spark a new light in the world. It wasn't happening in Jerusalem, so maybe of all places, it might happen in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, you think I gave you this kingdom by accident? You think I was bored in heaven one day and spun the globe and closed my eyes and plunked down my finger and said, who shall I favor this week? Don't you see I gave you all this for a reason? God always bestows favor for a reason. And as the remnant church of God, we can never forget that God has bestowed favor on us for a reason. God is not arbitrary. He raised up this movement for a reason. There is some, something we are supposed to do. The children of Israel were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They didn't do it. They let the Gentiles become a light to them. So God sends them to Babylon. They wanted to be Babylonians anyway. And when they get there, He shows them what it was they were supposed to do. He actually shows them in Babylon how possible their assignment actually was. Because while they're out working in the fields and digging in the mines and laboring like common slaves for Babylonian overlords, the most unlikely men on earth suddenly becomes a believer in the one true God. A ruthless pagan now does the job Israel's supposed to do. Nebuchadnezzar, read it carefully in his final words, sings the song of Moses and the Lamb. He does. Verse 34 of Daniel 4, I bless the Most High, praise and honor Him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. There's the verdict of the judgment. He's giving it before Daniel 7 is even written down. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways are justice. 
Compare that statement to Revelation 15, the Song of Moses and the Lamb. All his judgments are made manifest. A pagan king is fulfilling the gospel commission. He's delivering the verdict of the judgment. And the lesson for us is nothing will stop God's work. Jesus said, do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as a father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. One way or another, God's going to get the message out. And I don't know about you, but I want to be there when it happens. I want to be one of the people who sings that song. I want to sing it now, and I want to sing it then. We can't afford to lose our focus ever as a people of God. We cannot lose our simple focus. We cannot afford to try and outguess God's plan. God raised this church up for a simple reason. It's not complicated. We are not just another denomination. We are a gathering of believers from every nation, tribe, race, tongue, and people that God is raising up to finish the work. We are not just one more expression of Christianity among thousands. We are not just a side note, an item of interest in the long development of Christianity. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has been raised up by God to do something very specific and to say something very specific and to be something very specific. And if we lose our way, if we lose sight of the fact that this is a prophetic movement, if we lose sight of the fact that the world is supposed to find very specific spiritual food in this tree, if we forget the mission and the message that God gave us when He raised us up, then we too are in danger of losing our minds because we will have let go of the one reason God raised us up. Are we in danger of losing our minds? Let me ask a question. It's not an easy one. If a stranger stood outside your church board meeting with a glass to the door, would he be able to tell what the God-given mandate of the Seventh-day Adventist church is? If you gave the agenda for your church business meeting to an outsider, and maybe a copy of the minutes, (laughs) would that person be able to tell what the number one priority of the church is supposed to be? Would it be obvious that we believe Jesus is just about here? Would it be obvious that we have a burden for lost people, that we're desperate to save them, and that we lay awake worrying about them? Is our number one burden still for God's lost children? I'm not a fan of poetry. I know that's surprising to those of you who know how sensitive I am. There's one poem I like. Lord Byron wrote it, figures, right? The Adventist preacher likes one poem, and it's written by a hedonist. (laughs) She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climbs and starry skies. The only reason I like that one is because I used it on Jean when we first started dating. Now we've been married for almost 20 years. (laughs) That poem worked. (laughs) But as a rule, I don't like poems. I do remember, though, my first exposure to the English poet John Donne. happened in school. English literature class. I hated English literature class. We were, as usual, all staring out the window as the teacher droned on and on and on and on, and in my imagination, I was visiting some other place. A few of you are nodding your head. Yeah, I remember that. And all of a sudden, about 40 minutes into that lecture, a siren breaks the monotony, an ambulance. Woo-woo-woo. That's more of a European siren. I won't try to do an American one for you. Woo-woo-woo. And everything stops, and the teacher walks over to the window, and he looks outside. And he's quiet for a moment. We're watching him. And then he he notices we're suddenly paying attention, and he sees a teachable moment. Ask not for whom the bell tolls, he says. It tolls for thee. Well, that made us curious. 
It's a poem by John Donne, he said. He wrote that right after surviving a terrible disease, threatened his life. It's actually a poem about death. Well, now we were paying attention because a high school boy is not interested in poetry unless it's about death, especially if it might be about the death of the poet. So he started to recite the whole thing. Each man's death diminishes me. Don't think I've got it memorized. I have it right here. Each man's death diminishes me, for I'm involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Then he explained. He said every time somebody died, they used to ring the bell in the church, village, church. And everybody wondered, I wonder who died. He said, don't ask that, because every time somebody dies, we all lose something. It's really you. So don't ask who's riding in that ambulance today because it's you in a way. Every time you hear that sound, it's you. It's the whole human race. Take another hit. And 30 years later, I remember what he said next. We're all in this together. When somebody dies, you can't say, oh, I'm glad it's not me because in a way it is you. When a sinner dies without Jesus, we all lose something. Heaven loses. We're all in this together. Some people don't get that concept. Pharisee praying, I thank you, God, I'm not like this other guy. He doesn't get it. If someone dies in their sins, we all lose. You ever notice how Daniel lumps himself in with sinners when he prays? Daniel 9. He didn't commit those sins, but he prayed it anyway. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. He understands we are in this together, and we all lose something if somebody dies without Jesus. If somebody dies in their sins, they're lost. Heaven loses something. There is a peace ripped right out of God's heart. Don't go asking for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. So how often do we think about those people? How often do we still think about the lost? I mean, what would happen if we actually could hear a bell ring every time somebody died without Jesus? What if you could hear it happen? I promise you, heaven hears it, and they feel it, and they know what Jesus paid for that person. They know exactly what's been lost at that moment. I wish there was a bell, but there's not. Most days, we don't even think about those people. Let's be honest, I'm guilty of it. We even sanitize the way we talk about it. We don't talk about people as being lost because that just seems so negative. No, no, they're just poorly informed, maybe spiritually impoverished. They might be happier and better adjusted if they came to the church, but it's really not that critical. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they're lost. If they just needed more information, God could have only sent a guru, a positive-thinking guru, that God saw we were dying in our sins and we would be lost to His kingdom forever, and so He didn't send a guru, He sent a Savior. Don't ever underestimate what it will mean for somebody to be lost. Do not misjudge for a second how expensive that will be. Sister White writes, you cannot comprehend what a terrible thing it is to be lost. We don't want to say it anymore. We don't want to say that there's only one way to heaven. But that is what the Bible teaches. A Christless grave is a human being lost. There's this spot in the General Conference building. You stand on the west side of the atrium, look across the atrium, and they've got all these meeting rooms. They're stacked three high and four across. It looks like the cages at the pet store. 
Well, it does. That's what I see when I'm looking at them. And they're very busy. Your church is very busy, praise God. But as I stand there, I think about all the meetings that happen all over in our church. Union committees, conference committees, church boards, Sabbath school class, your Sabbath school teacher, class. How often do we mention the lost? How often? How often do they come up? Twenty-five years ago, I lived in this terrible apartment. It was pretty bad. It's all I could afford. I remember looking out the window one morning. It was so bad. I'd look out in the morning. There was a guy who slept in the dumpster just outside my bedroom window. And I would get up in the morning and look at him sleeping there thinking, at least he's not dumb enough to pay rent for this place. (laughs) It was that bad. And a year after I moved out of there, this little kid was abducted from the playground next to that apartment. His mom was playing soccer and he just disappeared. And it made national news, international news. It was on America's Most Wanted. The FBI took up the case for some reason. Obviously, it was a big deal. I noticed something. 25 years have gone by, and everybody quit talking about it. About 10 years out, somebody mentioned it again. They thought they found a clue, and his name came up. For three minutes in the evening news, we all thought about him. But his mother will never forget. Can a woman forget her nursing child, God says? They might forget, but I haven't forgotten you. I have you inscribed on the palms of my hands. What if we could hear a bell every time somebody died without Jesus? What if we could hear it? Maybe we can't do that, but what if we had just a moment of silence in every meeting to remind us why we exist and who's not there yet? Just a minute of silence. That might prove to be an iron band around the stump that brings our tree back to life. A very successful and influential man came to the end of his long career. It was a very successful one. Now it was time to sit back and enjoy the fruits of his labor. He earned it. He's so successful when he gets up in the morning and he looks out the window, everything he sees in every direction actually belongs to him. As far as the eye can see, you can't see past his property. Not because he's living on a massive ranch in the state of Texas, as impressive as that would be. Mm-mm, this is bigger. This guy could get on his white horse and travel forever in any direction and never leave his property, and that's because it's Jesus. The man who conquered the universe with his unbeatable love and a rough Roman cross. And on one particular morning, at some point in the future, he goes looking for someone he knows very well, and he finds him walking on the roof of his palace, his mansion, marveling at what he sees. And that man says in a half whisper, is this not great Jerusalem that God has built? And then he feels a hand on his shoulder. He doesn't even need to look. He knows who it is. Lord, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too, Nebuchadnezzar. You enjoying it here? I can't believe I thought Babylon was great. How did you know? 
Why didn't you give up on me? Because I knew it, Nebuchadnezzar. From the moment you were born, I knew I could save you. And that's why I sent the whole nation, all my people, to come get you when you were lost. And you know, to me, sure seems like it was worth it. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? There's one thing Jesus asked us to do. Just one. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.